guys. Good evening. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research fellow here at the Middle East Center. Um, and I'm really happy to be talking about this topic of foreign capitalism in the Middle East with Ishaq Kivon uh, and Adil Malik, who I'm sure you all know quite um, well from their work. Um, Ishaq is a professor of economics at Paris France Lecture, which is a consortium of Parisian universities where he holds the chair in the economy of the Arab world. He has also held recent teaching positions at Columbia University and at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, he directs the political economy program of the Economic Research Forum, where he runs two projects on the study of crony capitalism and the analysis of opinion surveys. Um, and he's a frequent consultant with governments and international organizations, working recently on policy issues in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, and Egypt. Um, Adil is a Globe Fellow in the Economies of Muslim Societies at the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. He's also an Associate Professor at the Department of International Development at Oxford. Um, and he's an empirical economist with a strong multidisciplinary orientation and is trying to develop a broader research lens to study Middle Eastern economy. And I guess this book is, is a large part of that. Um, it's a fantastic edited volume that came out in summer of last year. Unfortunately, we don't have copies. We have this one, one, co one copy for you to see uh, what it looks like, and, uh, but it's available online. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about the contents of it a bit more. Um, each of the speakers will talk for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, but, but before we get started, I just ask that you silence your phones. The talk is being recorded. But if you do want to tweet about the event, the hashtag is LSE Middle East. So start with uh, Isha. Well, thank you for the invitation, and thank you for being here. Um, it's great to present the book here. Uh, it's a very interesting book. I read it again yesterday after uh, kind of uh, a few months, and uh, it's really high, highly recommended. Um, the idea for the book came really after 2011, uh, where the issue of, of chronism was very important in the revolutions uh, in, in, in Tunisia and in Egypt. And... Um, more data also became available, and the stories were in the newspapers. They were part of the slogans of the revolutionaries. So really, the the the, the kind of talk that existed for many years about how uh, the, the 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 reforms of the private sector uh, over time uh, helped in the persistence of autocracy uh, became a more exciting topic for research. And several of us uh, in the book where we're researching, uh, starting to get uh, more quantitative, more precise, uh, and, and, and we kind of came together in a project led or financed by the Economic Research Forum, a group of uh, regional econo economists uh, in Egypt. Uh, and then we, we formed a team, and then we worked for a couple of years, uh, met several times, and I think uh, it, uh, <clears throat> it helped to develop uh, new methodologies that uh, I think make make the book uh, richer. Um, maybe a few words on. Uh, I'll get us started. You would come after. Sure. Uh, a little bit on uh, kind of the the, the 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 political environment that led to what we call crony capitalism, and then I'll get into uh, giving you a sense of uh, of the data we got and the method we used. Um, in terms of the broad framework, uh, which I use this, right? Ah. So in terms of the broad framework, uh, 
basically there's been a literature about uh, the the post-liberalization era, the, the 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 early 90s, how how market uh, were adjusted. Um, basically, coming out of the bankruptcy of the old model of state-led uh, import substitution, most autocratic regimes in the region were kind of forced to liberalize to some extent their markets. Uh, and, but, and like other regions, in particular Latin America and Africa, they didn't liberalize their polity. And uh, indeed, uh, you know, after the, the, the debt crisis and the hard adjustment of the 80s, coming out of that, uh, these kind of aging autocrats had lost a lot of legitimacy, they've lost uh, the ideological narrative, and, and increasingly uh, the literature described them as, as uh, you know, autocrats using carrots and sticks and uh, to, to, to stay in power. And so it's in that environment where they had lost many of the levers of, of, uh, uh, of, of power, uh, you know, the large budgets, uh, the, the investment budgets, civil service hiring, uh, state-owned enterprises, the large armies. Um, they had to liberalize in this environment where their power was very fragile. Uh, and so this liberalization was characterized by opening the private sector largely to friends uh, in ways that precludes the opposition from taking root in, in the heights of the economy and potentially uh, uh, financing some some opposition to their rules, uh, and and uh, uh, so they, they they either you know in 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 uh, the kind of the more conservative countries they recontracted with an existing private sector to to open up the economy uh, and and change uh, marginally the contract with with the elites, uh, and in the more populist countries they literally defaulted on. Uh, the masses uh, that that gave them legitimacy and and uh, uh, made a deal with new firms that they created, uh, uh, cronies that were close to them, uh, and and that were put in charge of uh, creating some more growth and 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 creating jobs and and opening up the economy. Um, so this gave rise to what got called. Uh, and what we call the Arab crony, Arab variety uh, of, of capitalism, some crony capitalism, uh, which, uh, you know, when you look at it from a half glass full, did generate some modest growth. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, growth was, was, was not widely shared and uh, didn't create many jobs. Uh, and was growth very much focused on uh, non-tradable, protected sectors, as opposed to uh, competitive growth that, that was able to kind of create uh, uh, export markets. Um, this, this graph, I think, uh, illustrates quite nicely. Uh, the, the, this, this is uh, from, uh, what was the source? World Value Service. World Value Service, exactly. Uh, corruption in government and corruption in, in the private sector, in businesses. People's perception of corruption in both spheres are closely connected. Uh, and so when you unbundle corruption a little bit, it, it's really about both private sector and public sector being in, in, in bed together uh, and giving rise to very low uh, confidence in very low trust in the private sector in the region. Um, so our book, 
bids on literature such as Stephen Heinemann, very interesting volume, and the value added is, is very much that we, we, we look deeper and in a more quantitative way uh, on the nature of crony, crony firms, what is, uh, you know, who are the connected firms, where are they in the economy, in what sectors, uh, the, the mechanisms uh, through which they get privileges, um, and, and the impact also of this, uh, uh, of, of their privileges on the rest of the economy, on growth, on job creation. Uh, we also speculate about the impact of this kind of economy on politics itself, you know, trying to guess what is the, the exchange exactly that is, that is happening between uh, the, the economic and the political elite and how this affects in turn the politics. Um, so the, the, the data that we use, I think, is, uh, is really what makes the project very special. Uh, each one of us uh, had to go and look deep in, in, in the country they, they, they were looking at uh, to, to find special sources of data. I was working on Egypt, and uh, we managed to get three censuses of all firms in the economy out of Katmas. I think there was a short period in time where Katmas, the statistical agency in Egypt, was more open. Uh, I was also able to get uh, from the tax authorities microdata on payments of taxes by all Lebanese firms over 10 years. Uh, others uh, got very nice data from microdata again from Tunisia, uh, uh, literally a census of firms with uh, all the firms, uh, a lot of detail on the firms uh, owned by the Ben Ali family. Uh, and so th there was also work on Turkey that was based on census and uh, uh, an industrial census, I think, in that particular case. So in the cases of Egypt, Lebanon, Tunisia, Turkey, and, and Morocco as well, uh, we have an insider that used to be a minister of, uh, of the economy. And you know, using kind of his crony relationships, he was able to obtain, actually, uh, a survey and decode the names of all the firms in that particular survey. Uh, so, so the data was, was very rich. Um, <clears throat> the methods we used. Uh, uh, our co collection of empirical methods. In, in some cases, we were trying to get close to drawing causality links, especially using you know, particular events, in particular the, the events of the revolution in Egypt, which was somewhat random and expected an election uh, event in Lebanon. Uh, in other cases, we we're mostly talking about correlation and trying to argue uh, for what explains these relationship, which, uh, you know, how causality is working. In terms of the identification of firms, we use pretty much uh, the standard in the literature, following Fascio and, and, and others, which is uh, of identifying firms, identifying on the side uh, politically connected individuals, and trying to draw connections between the, the politicians' list and uh, a list of managers and shareholders, typically of larger than 10% shares, uh, of, 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 of firms using, uh, you know, the media and, and all kinds of sources. So we err on the side of conservatism. That is, you know, when we 
pin down a firm as being uh, privileged, connected to politicians. Uh, uh, it tends to be the case, and we probably are missing quite a few others. The approach is slightly different in Turkey and Iran, where uh, in, in those cases the, the, we're focusing on a group of firms that are either politically connected uh, through political uh, organization, uh, interest or, in Iran, uh, organizational interest, various, uh, 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 various foundations uh, that are close to the state. In, in the case of Turkey, we focus on groups or associations of, of businesses that were close to, to the AKP, uh, religious, uh, uh, religiously minded uh, small groups uh, that have been called later the Anatolian Tigers. Here's an example of the firms uh, we track in uh, Tunisia. Looks like a lot of the business happened in the bedroom of, of the president. Uh, so they're all cousins and brothers. And, and you can already, by looking at the names of the company, see uh, the type of uh, sectors in which they were. Uh, mostly the, the, the onshore sectors that are protected, you know, tourism, finance, distribution, uh, construction, um, car dealerships. A slightly different organization in Morocco, it's, it's a monarchy, uh, and there you have the royal, the royal family at the center of the network, surrounded by the, 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 the elite that's around the palace, uh, and, and many of the large families that have historically been uh, important since um, you know, post-independence, that come in and out of government and, and draw or solidify their, their business interests through uh, occasional participation in, in, in government. Uh, in, in Egypt, we ended up focusing on 32 individuals that were part uh, of the party uh, or uh, think tanks uh, or the chambers that were closely connected to the party um, and that uh, <clears throat> many of whom were ministers uh, or in parliament in the last part of the Mubarak uh, regime, the, the famous uh, cabinet uh, headed by, uh, I forgot his Nazif. name, Nazif, uh, was it? Nazif cabinet? Yes. Okay. And um, so these 32 individuals owned many companies. Uh, the Ice family, for example, is well known for dominating the steel uh, industry. Raiz uh, was also the, the head of the election committee for, for Mubarak. He was also the head of uh, the policy committee in parliament that passed the laws on anti-corruption and uh, uh, anti-monopoly. Um, you know, other ministers of agriculture, minister of tourism were also very big uh, players in those industries. It was the government of, uh, of, the, of the private sector then, with lots of connected individuals present there. <coughs> All right, so at the end, we have 385 firms in Egypt, uh, owned by these 32 individuals, four, nearly 500 in Lebanon, 600 or so in Tunisia, uh, and a little bit uh, less in, uh, in Morocco. Uh, and we have subclassifications in terms of which part of the elite own these, these firms. Um, typically, they operated, as I said, in protected industries, uh, and they grew fast over the period. Uh, you could 
clearly see in many countries, I'll show you some graph, that, that they, they, they've doubled in Egypt, for example, between the 90s and the 2000s. Uh, in, in Egypt and other countries, they tended to be organized in pyramidal structure so that you could move profit from company to company and, and control, you know, first rank controls, uh, the second rank was 50%, and then you can control the third rank with only 25%. So they were clearly leveraging as much as possible their political connections to, 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 to maximize uh, the, 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 the volume of firms and sectors they were controlling. Um, uh, they, were, they also tend to be extremely capital intensive, and they have uh, very well... Uh, uh, very good access uh, to, to, to finance. Uh, in, in the Egyptian case, for example, these 500 companies, ultimately controlled by 32 individuals, uh, uh, were receiving in 2010 close to 90% of all the credit going to the private sector. This gives you a sense of uh, their distribution across sectors. There's variations between countries. Let me not get into the detail, but uh, we basically, when we talk of sectors or subsectors, we look at it at what's called the fourth-digit uh, level, so at a very detailed level. We end up comparing firms, you know, connected, non-connected, uh, but typically within subsectors, so that we're controlling for all the specificity of a sector. A sector at a four-digit level, Egypt has about uh, 500 of these subsectors with you know, census data you could get pretty detailed. And uh, in Egypt, uh, for example, uh, those cronies existed in about half the sectors. Uh, this, this gives you a sense of, of the growth of cronism over time. Um, that's an interesting graph from Morocco. Whoops. I don't control this very well. That shows you here that uh, they, they grew specially in the non-tradable sectors as opposed to the tradable sectors, right? I mean, the tradable sectors, you have competition by foreign firms. It's, it's very hard to, uh, uh, to, to, to actually monopolize those sectors uh, and, unless you are able to turn them into non-tradable sector by affecting trade uh, policies and, and protecting those sectors, many of which did, you know, the case of as I told you about, is, uh, is, is iconic in that sense. Uh, he turned, uh, you know, he monopolized uh, the, 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 the steel market by uh, closing off to foreign competition for several years, uh, allowing him to make huge profits, part of which he then put into the election campaign, you know, the, the payback of Mubarak uh, of, uh, what was it, 2005, I believe. Yeah. Another interesting example, this is the paper on Turkey. The paper on Turkey does two things. Uh, they look at the, the, the Anatolian tigers and, and how they catch up with, with the rest of the economy and become a big, you know, they, 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 they have benefits, but uh, they, 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 they're included in the economy. Uh, you'll see that this leads to more growth. But uh, the paper also looks at the top 1,000 companies in the country, and within those uh, uh, 1,000 largest companies, the AKP uh, connected politicians uh, bus slash businessmen rise. And, and you see the bottom line is, is the rise, and they become 
they converge in size towards the more traditional Istanbul-based uh, large companies. All right, uh, some more numbers to give you some, some sense of magnitudes. In Egypt, the politically connected firms uh, got in 2010 60% of total corporate, uh, total corporate profits of the formal sector. Uh, the formal sector never grew to more than 15% of formal uh, jobs in Egypt. So it grew, but, but not that much. Uh, so they generated only 11% of, of, of that employment, of, of total employment. Um, we, calculate, uh, we, we, we calculate how much uh, uh, the, 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 the entry in, of crony firms into a sector reduced growth in this sector. Um, so, you know, we compare sectors uh, over time where with no cronies to, uh, to, 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 to the entry of cronies, controlling for the specificities of the firms and of the sector. So we have this heroic finding that uh, the economy would have grown, or those sectors where cronies came in would have generated 25% more jobs if it wasn't for the entry of these crony firms. Uh, maybe Adil will speak a, lot, a little bit more about that, but we, we look into the mechanisms uh, for that uh, reduction in growth, and it's, it's largely about competition and, and monopolies, and uh, competitors taking a back seat and not investing in innovations when it's, they see these kind of deep pockets company coming into distribution, tourism, uh, construction, real estate, uh, and, and, and the like. These were the main sectors there. There's some similar work in Tunisia. Uh, doesn't get to the impact of growth. Uh, they, uh, the, the to all the crony firms accounted for 10% of the jobs, 30% of output, and over 50% of profits in 2010. Uh, and the paper shows that their entry leads to more concentrated sectors. Uh, they don't go all the way to growth. In Lebanon, we have some very interesting results. Um, cronies are in fewer sectors, but they're very invested in those sectors. And um, when they come into a sector, they tend to be very large. And, um, and, like, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and they overhire, and so as if the, the paying back the politicians for the privileges they get in terms of uh, land and contracts and, and, and easier regulation when they are universities or hospitals by hiring uh, more of the clients of their patron, especially around election time. And so we, we, we do an experiment in terms of how much they grow. They grow mostly or they hire mostly around election time. Uh, they grow but their competitors take a back seat, and again, as a result, the sector grows less than non-connected sectors. A similar evidence, a little less strong, in, uh, in, in Morocco and, and Turkey. Not similar evidence, sorry, in Morocco and Turkey. Uh, there, the suspicion is that maybe the impact on growth is, is less important in Morocco. You have a feel, 
even though the author of the paper is a fierce critique of the regime, there's a fear uh, sense at the end <coughs> that that the economic elite are somewhat well managed for performance by the palace. So it's not a general rule that uh, having closed state uh, business relations is always bad for growth. It, it depends a lot on the bargaining power between the two sides and, and what the political strategy is. Uh, in the case of Morocco, uh, you know, an older economic elite, somewhat better managed, uh, gave mildly positive results. In Turkey, a very different story. Groups that were advantaged were excluded from the economy in the past, pious small firms outside, you know, at the periphery. And actually, the favors they got from the AKP allowed them to increase productivity, uh, converge towards uh, the, the bigger firms, and uh, participate a lot in the doubling of uh, export that occurred during the AKP decade from 2000 to 2010, and, and, and vote for the regime and uh, for, for, for the party and finance it. And so it gave rise to at least a virtuous circle for, for at least 15 years, where somehow the constellation of economic and, and political interest was, was aligned uh, and rising. A different story. Uh, we talk also about other cases in the book that where we didn't get data and we don't get into, into as much detail, but, but clearly a lot happening in Syria, Iraq, Algeria, Palestine, uh, and even in the GCC where the private sector is largely owned by the public sector, uh, not too different from the Iranian case as well. Um, I mean, interestingly, there have been action in, 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 in a lot of these countries very recently, and so there's a new, renewed interest, uh, you know, whether regimes uh, consolidating themselves by uh, enforcing new rules on the private sector, you know, I'm thinking of, of Algeria, where, you know, a lot of the rich uh, guys connected to Bouteflika were arrested by the army, trying to consolidate a new regime uh, in Sudan, where... Uh, you know, the, the, the cronies of, of the past president are under attack now, some of them at least, not those close to the army, but those close to the Islamic parties. You know, not to talk of, uh, of Saudi Arabia uh, and, and the famous uh, hotel incident where, you know, the, 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 the cronies of the previous king had to pay for the economic difficulties and, and probably to also weaken that elite and, and uh, allow MBS to, to strengthen his hold on power. Uh, in Egypt as well, we have big changes. Maybe we'll speak about all of that uh, in, in the Q&A. Um, but also the, the re recent rebellions in, in Lebanon, Iraq, and to some extent in Morocco are, again, uh, you know, very much focused on the corruption of the elites and the special privileges they have. Okay. Uh, shall I, I pass the baton to you? Yes. Great. Here you go. Well, thank you very much, uh, uh, firstly, to the LSE Middle East Center for inviting us to present this work. Uh, thank you, Sark, for laying out the larger scope of the project. Um, in the limited time available, I'm going to talk about two issues. One is the types of mechanisms that cronies use to receive favors. And secondly, to situate this evidence more broadly in the larger crony capitalism literature, because we know cronyism is a pervasive feature across developing societies, how is the Middle Eastern variant of cronyism different? Um, we have some pointers on that. 
So firstly, mechanisms. Uh, Ishaq has presented some evidence on how cronyism undermines job creation. Um, but of course, this is all uh, you know, part of the broader set of mechanisms that are deployed, deployed in this uh, perspective. Uh, for example, a lot of the losses uh, are in terms of the misallocation of the factors of production. Uh, uh, you know, capital, the talent, also land, because land gets uh, misallocated. Uh, I'll soon be presenting you insights on procurement, how public procurement gets tainted. Uh, and all of this means that there is relatively less innovation in these sectors. There are some chapters that provide more clear evidence on this account. And of course, this is associated with the set of poor institutions and policies um, uh, due to lobbying by cronies, whether it's the distortion of the trade, judicial system, property rights, finance, um, all of this kind of adds up to the transaction costs uh, in, that, in those sectors. At the end of the day, this whole cronyism uh, creates support for conservative authoritarianism uh, uh, that supports the status quo. And one of the key messages of this book is that if there's one element uh, uh, in which the, the manacronism stands out, it's in terms of exclusion. The ability of crony capitalist relations to exclude other firms uh, from, from this process. So I'm going to present to you work by individual authors, uh, parts of different chapters, and in each slide I'm going to present you a plot and the larger story that emerges from it. I have very limited time available, so I'm going to zoom through some of these slides, but I'm hoping that in the Q&A session, we can talk more about it. So Ishaq Divan's paper, for example, in Egypt tells us that politically connected firms tend to be concentrated in those sectors that rely more on energy subsidies. We know half of the global energy subsidies are distributed in the Mali region. Both food and fuel subsidies are very pervasive. So a lot of the firms tend to be more capital intensive and therefore create fewer jobs, in part because they are constant, tend to be concentrated in higher energy intensive sectors. The paper in Morocco tells us about board memberships. So Mohamed Obinal collected this fantastic data set on members of boards of different companies that are listed in stock exchange. And he creates, using social network methods, he creates board interlocks. Who are the members who are present on different boards? right? And through that interlocking set of board memberships, he identifies that the largest concentration of these interlocks are in the middle of uh, this is the finance sector. So these are largely individuals that are appointed by the king, uh, members of the Maksan, the royal court. Uh, and by controlling finance, they are actually able to control indirectly other parts of the economy. So if you want to think about Moroccan cronyism, finance sits at the heart of it and kind of connects with the plot that Isaac presented, that over time, there's been a greater presence and entry of crony actors in finance, real estate, construction, these sort of sectors are very rent-thick uh, sectors. There's stuff on uh, Lebanon. I mean, Le Lebanon is the iconic case where much of the banking sector is controlled by the ruling elite. About 43% of the banking capital is under the direct control of these. So if you look at the direct, uh, you know, patron is currently a member of the parliament and the government. In a lot of cases, uh, these uh, you know, board members, the owners of the bank are either directly sitting in the parliament or are indirectly connected to the parliament. <coughs> so the banking sector has a whole, and that, you know, maybe Ishaq can speak on this later, about what it means for 
for reform in, in Lebanon uh, today. Privatization, this is the age-old story about how rents from privatization are captured. But what's interesting about the evidence presented in this book is how a lot of the firms that were privatized that went into Benali uh, uh, and his family, <coughs> firms, these were firms who became successful only by virtue of being in the regul regulated, highly regulated sectors. So if you look at the evolution of profits of firms that were privatized um, and the evolution of output before and after the privatization, it's largely these Benali firms that became more profitable. Uh, so in other words, the profitability of firms after privatization was largely a phenomenon restricted to Benali firms. And uh, I'm going to present some evidence on how their presence in regulation-heavy sectors um, is partly a, a, an explanation. The Iranian experience is very, very interesting and very different. Uh, as Isaac mentioned before, it's not individuals, but it's organizational interests that matter. And here are these organizations that are Bunyad al-Mustafizah, the Martyrs Foundation, the IRGC, there are a lot of these foundations that for all intents and purposes are public organizations, but they're characterized as uh, private or semi-public organizations. Um, and looking through the accounts of these and you know overall their presence in, 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 in the stock market, um, Kevon Harris weaves a more sophisticated story in which he argues that actually privatization led to a change in the institutional ownership structures, right? So greater diversification of ownership types in Iran. And uh, what you find is that this kind of conglomerate ownership in the hands of semi-public sector organizations is not a very unique feature of Iran. It's actually shared by a lot of other uh, countries in emerging markets. But in the Iranian political context, this is clearly very distinct because you have a context in which the country went through Iran-Iraq war, uh, there were a lot of martyrs, uh, there are broad social constituencies that are allied with the Iranian regime uh, who need to be catered for, the role of international sanctions, and a lot of these mix of international and internal factors uh, create the type of uh, ownership that you find in Iran. My own work on trade policy in Egypt and Morocco uh, uh, tells us about a similar interplay between domestic and external factors. So we look at the EU trade agreements that were signed with uh, Egypt and uh, Morocco, and these trade agreements were part of what we call the Barcelona process. It was EU's attempt to create better security relationship with North African countries through trade. And the bulk of the, uh, uh, the trade agreement was about tariff reduction. Um, and in this context, you find that, you know, in 2005, there is this Egypt-EU free trade agreement comes online, and we look at sectors that were populated by politically connected actors prior to the agreement, so till 1998, what sectors were classified as crony, and then track their impact on the evolution of trade policy post-EU agreement. Uh, similar story we trace in uh, Morocco, where we look at uh, uh, the Morocco-EU Association Agreement which came, comes online in 2000. It's affiliate, associated with a reduction in tariff barriers. And a year later, it was followed by a rise in non-tariff measures. So there's a, uh, a trade policy substitution event where falling tariffs are compensated by rising non-tariff measures. And we explore the extent to which this rise in non-tariff measures across sectors 
was different for connected versus unconnected sectors. And the evidence is very interesting. Um, this uh, dotted line is the non-crony sectors and the evolution of uh, non-tariff measures, so the share of products within a sector that are covered by non-tariff measures. These non-tariff measures are basically regulations, different types of like health and phytosanitary requirements, technical barriers to pay, licensing requirements. Uh, uh, the EU emphasizes these for harmonization purposes. What you find is that post the agreement, there's a clear differential between connected versus unconnected uh, sectors, in the sense that connected sectors ended up receiving a larger share of non-tariff measures than unconnected sectors. In the case of Morocco, we could actually distinguish between different members of the ruling coalition. So sectors where the royal family is directly present, or sectors where politicians and Maxim people are, are active. And we find that actually it is the politician-owned sectors um, where the non-tariff measures went up a lot more. And it's easy to understand because the royal family tends to operate a lot more in real estate, finance, construction, rather than in manufacturing. So you could see post-agreement is the, is the cabinet, former cabinet ministers, politicians. Uh, those are the sectors where compensatory trade protection is coming online. So this is an important point in a way because it tells us that uh, different parts of the trade policy are used to compensate different actors. So when it comes to trade policy, at least in the Moroccan context, it is used mainly to compensate members of the ruling coalition who sit in the parliament, so more the politician uh, uh, types. Now this is also, uh, this sort of data allows us to look in more deeply. So within the non-tariff measures, there are these technical barriers to trade. Uh, these are the kind of authorization requirements, labeling requirements, conformity assessment requirements. Uh, when these goods arrive on the port, you need to make sure that these, they meet these uh, uh, conditions. And these are the sort of requirements, particularly B859, B89. These are the sorts of non-tariff measure requirements that require more administrative oversight. They require greater, uh, for, for, the, for the cronies, it's easier enforcement. For the unconnected sectors, it's more difficult enforcement. And that, in a sense, sums up a key challenge in the MANA context where I have a quote here from Abdullah Dardari, who's uh, the former uh, Deputy Prime Minister in, in Syria, who talked about how uh, these rent-seeking networks, yes, they're around, they're powerful, but they're undergoing a change. And what's the change? Well, it's the World Trade Organization that is setting up the rules, and they will no longer be able to control. But that was clearly, um, uh, that hope was, was uh, uh, misfounded, because if you look at uh, uh, trade protection, one form of trade protection was simply replaced with another type of trade protection. And these trade agreements left enough scope for local elites uh, to play around with it. And it also links up with this larger argument that Louis Gisengalis raises in the global context, which is that the larger is the size and complexity of regulation, the more easier it is for vested interest groups to, to play uh, uh, according to the rules. So, you know, one of, the, one of the key insights of this project is to tell us that actually in the wake of liberalization, there was a lot of re-regulation of the economy. And that's where cronies use the regulations uh, to their advantage. On procurement, we have very systematic evidence from Turkey 
where the author studied about 18,000 procurement contracts in Turkey and found that a lot of these construction contracts went to firms that are linked with uh, AKP party, right? Justice and Development Party. And many of these firms were set up in the 1990s. Uh, and you could see that how politically connected firms are being compensated. In Tunisia, again, if you look at the contribution of Benali firms um, in the economy or in other sectors or in sectors that are protected by regulation, Benali firms tended to be present in those sectors that are highly regulated, such as sectors that are close to foreign competition or sectors where there are other regulations uh, that try and exclude these firms uh, uh, from, uh, from the economy. Okay, if I could take five minutes to, to, to basically sum this up, uh, what does this mean? I mean, we know there are a lot of these crony firms. They are impacting job creation and growth. They're using a lot of instruments that are not completely dissimilar from, from some other cases. Um, how do we think about cronyism in a global perspective? And any scholar thinking about this subject would have to confront with the prior literature that talks about you know, the rise of shables in South Korea, for example. There's a lot of growth of crony firms in Suharto's in Tunisia. There's evidence around that. Uh, Philippines is a classic example. And in fact, if you were to go back to historical experience in the United States and Britain, there, there's familiar logic in, in certain periods of time when these groups, economic and political power, co-evolved. In fact, uh, uh, you know, Douglas North, uh, the, the famous institutional economist, talked about how all, in the early stages of development, all economic organizations are effectively also political organizations. Um, Stephen Haber's work on Latin America, for example, tells us about this commitment problem where these large firms or firms that have growth potential want, uh, you know, some protection from arbitrary state action, but the state that is strong enough to promise uh, them rule of law is also strong enough to confiscate their property. So cronyism could be a second best solution in those cases, where it provides a commitment device that the rulers will not expropriate. There's also work by North Wallace and Weingast, which Isaac uh, Divan's uh, chapter on Lebanon clearly spells out as well, is how a lot of what goes around <coughs> in crony capitalist relations is to create rents for elites whose support is crucial for regimes. Right? So if you have, if you take away these privileges, Lebanon is a classic example, right? If you take away these privileges, uh, the, the political system uh, would face huge, huge disruption. So how do we think about MENA in this context? And I want to close by talking about uh, six possibly distinguishing characteristics of MENA cronyism, but this is an area where more research needs to be done. The first which we would really like to highlight is exclusion. Every crony capitalist relation involves some degree of exclusion, because you include somebody and there's some degree of exclusion. Uh, but it's the sheer scale of exclusion on which the MENA region, the Middle East and North Africa region, defined more broadly, stands out. Uh, and part of this is because there's extreme risk aversion on the part of regimes uh, on alternative sources of income. They don't want independent sources of income that could have consequences for politics. And that's why you have high barriers to entry in very rent-thick and fast-growing sectors. Um, 
And these barriers are obviously not just economic barriers, they're also political barriers. The logic that we highlight in the book is one of partner or parish. All across the region, there's a perverse logic where either you have to partner with one of the regime insiders, or be prepared to be expropriated or face the death of the firm. So in other words, the instruments are really blunt, very generous uh, carrots, but very deadly sticks. Now, of course, it varies quite a bit. I mean, in Lebanon's case, it's slightly different. But by and large, that's the story we find. Uh, so either you do partnership with one of the regime insiders or go underground. Um, in Syria, of course, now Makhlouf um, is under the scanner. But for a long time, it used to be uh, a, you know, a public statement that, well, you're either with the Makhlouf or you're against the law. Uh, which means the law can be invoked any time to, uh, to put you in, uh, behind bars or to affect your business. In this context, obviously, firms either partner with the regime or go underground. The third key d distinguishing factor is the nature of bargaining strength. Business-state relationship in different parts of the world is guided by bargaining structures. It's often a result of a lobbying game, right? So businesses lobby for power, they give something to the politicians, get something in return, they have business associations. When it comes to the Mena states, they have a decisive upper hand uh, in their relationship with the private sector. And in fact, in many of the cases, businesses are born at the initiative of political authority. Uh, so very weak or non-existent bargaining structures. So if you're looking at a kind of Goldilocks equilibrium between business and uh, political interests, you know, there is a, there's a state of the world where economic power is granted by political power through the creation of monopoly or quasi-monopoly rights. Indonesia under Suharto was a key example. The Middle East is closer to that equilibrium compared to the other one where rich businessmen are controlling the political system uh, in Thailand, for example, or uh, many cases in, in Latin America. I think another important aspect of, of Middle Eastern context is that there's very adverse historical legacy for business, right? Because on the eve of independence, a lot of these businesses were very weak in general. They, did, they lacked a voice. Uh, the region has been hugely reliant on external rents, which has reduced the state's dependence on productive classes. Therefore, fewer, much less need to give them concessions. Um, and cronyism in this context is kind of delinked from any economic rationale, for example, industrial policy and so, forth, so on and so forth. Also, it comes with an erosion of state capacity. And I've already talked about how, uh, you know, uh, post-liberalization, we have seen re-regulation of the economy. Another startling feature is limited export orientation. So it matters which sectors crony operate. So here is a plot from Turkey, and you could see that the religious network firms, these, uh, these circular uh, bits, uh, they're kind of becoming more export-oriented over time, right? And they are displacing, as Ishaq Divan said, they're displacing the larger firms that were in Izmir or Anatolia or Istanbul, these larger firms, secular network firms. Um, so they are displacing uh, 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 other kind of previous cronies, and they are export-oriented and they're larger. In a lot of other countries, uh, these firms are not in export-oriented sectors. 
because in Southeast Asia, for example, a lot of the connected firms, including Shables, were in export-oriented sectors where they received a lot of protection, but in the end they were forced to, to compete in global markets. Uh, in, uh, uh, in Turkey, for example, firms in the religious network are younger, uh, they are uh, more labor-intensive, and they grow more, and they're more penetrated into the export sector, so that is a key distinguishing uh, feature. Uh, Interfirm linkages, we know how, you know, it's possible that there's a firm that is connected, but it has a lot of supplier relationship with small and medium enterprises. So its growth benefits and trickles down to the rest of the economy. And a lot of the preliminary evidence we have from the Middle East suggests that interfirm linkages are notoriously weak um, across the region. Uh, and the region also relies a lot more in distortionary uh, mechanisms like subsidies, foreign exchange controls. Um, obviously, this is a very fine-grained, highly empirically grounded project that tries to give us a sense of, you know, what we say the devil is in the details. We know crony capitalism is a blanket term. When it comes to Middle East uh, a business state relationship, there's very little heterogeneity. The book offers us uh, a more fine-grained understanding of where cronies are, what mechanisms they use to privilege themselves, uh, how cronyism in Lebanon needs to be understood within its own political context compared to Tunisia or Egypt or Morocco. Um, but there are lots of unanswered questions. You know, one of the questions on which I've got a couple of slides and I'm hoping that somebody would ask me a question so that I don't have to spend time now, which is on what do cronies get in exchange? There's always some exchange, right? Some political bargain. Um, and we've got some ideas which we'll share in Q&A. Of course, we know what's happening to crony firms. What's happening to non-crony firms, particularly the informal sector, uh, is an important question. What's the nature of competition amongst crony firms? Because it's possible you have a sector where there are lots of crony firms and they're competing with each other. It's very different from a sector in which there are few crony firms and they are largely capturing the sector. Um, what's the economic role of the, of the military, which is the case of Egypt? So I've got a couple of slides on these questions, but I think I'll finish here. I'll stop here and um, you know bring you back to that discussion in Q and A. Fantastic! Thank you. We covered quite a lot of ground uh, very quickly, so thank you for that. Um, so I guess we're going to open up for questions and answers. Ask that you um, keep your questions to questions and keep them relatively brief, so that we have a chance for more people to ask. Um, and for our speakers to answer, um, and we'll, we have a microphone going around, so if you wait for that to arrive before you speak, to that, start speaking. Um, so yeah. I'd like to start, I guess. Thank you very much. Uh, I had the pleasure of um, reading some of the book, and uh, it's, it's really, I'm, especially the empirical material is really interesting, so congratulations on putting that together. It's very informative. Uh, one, one thing I noticed, though, is that uh, in your book, sort of cronyism is a domestic affair, but especially in the sectors that you look at, like telecoms, real estate, we see more and more Gulf investment. So in future, if we look at cronyism, how do we get that into as part of the story? Because there's not... The, the networks are internationalizing in a sense. And secondly, uh, while I have Professor Diwan here, uh, in your chapter on Lebanon, you kind of give the settlement, post-Taif political settlement, you explain what it was. How is that changing now? Uh, and now that the kind of rent base is gone, 
what's going to be the new settlement in Lebanon and how's that going to affect cronyism? Thank you. Very easy question. Um, should we collect a couple more for any, any others? Um, well, I guess I had a question um, just to, to throw in. Is when you're asking about kind of what cronies get in exchange, I guess I wanted to know how that's different across different political political structures and also with the presence of oil rents. Like, does that affect what cronies get in exchange or how they operate or pathways to becoming a crony? Um, so I guess kind of how, how the incentives are different across different uh, political and economic structures. So, um, Shall I go first, Isaac? Sure. On, 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 on these two points, and you can come on Lebanon. I mean, I've actually got slides on this. <laughs> uh, so what do cronies get in exchange? I mean, you're talking about, uh, obviously, in some cases, rulers are business partners. So obviously, they get money in exchange. Um, I talked about binding commitments for regime durability, right? So, you know, cronies get favors, and in turn, they throw their support to the regime. Um, the other ways, for example, in Syria's case, we know that cronies help to navigate the role of sanctions. Right? And that's very, very important because a lot of the groups who, uh, who, who, who helped navigate these sanctions are the ones that, are, uh, that became powerful over time. So that links up with your external point, and I'll come to that in a separate slide. Um, Courtney, to your question about how it differs, so Lebanon is a classic example. Isaac's paper, for example, shows how um, close to the election period, right, a lot of these firms, large connected firms, that are not necessarily more productive, but they're creating a lot more jobs. Doesn't make a lot of economic sense, but it makes political sense because a lot of these firms are controlled by different oligarchic members of the elite, and they are have to create employment. So in the Lebanese context, it's actually creating more uh, employment. Another aspect is media ownership. All across the region, we see a lot of the cronies setting up their own media units, and in some cases, these media units are not productive. They're not profitable. Uh, they are a way, uh, you know, to pay back to the regime. Um, you have examples spread throughout the region, you know, uh, AKP-affiliated business groups setting up uh, 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 television stations, sectarian oligarchs in Lebanon, the Saveri's family in Egypt, the Samir Fawz family in Syria, uh, the Lana uh, TV group is, is owned by them, and their coverage obviously supports uh, the regime in different ways. Uh, the external dimension is hugely important. We did not deal with it explicitly, but there's some work, for example, Safina's uh, work on Egypt uh, tells us. Uh, some of the stories highlight this. For example, in Egypt, um, a lot of the geopolitical and political drivers of economic reform uh, and the, uh, created, you know, strengthened these institutions like the Egyptian Center for Economic Studies uh, or these uh, different joint business councils. So uh, you have the Egypt American Chambers of Commerce and Industry. Egypt, EU Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And these actors were very crucial in negotiating these international deals. And at the same time, they sat in the parliamentary committees. Uh, so in my context, for example, on, uh, on trade reform, it's clear that uh, you know, this reform was largely driven by a geopolitical framework. And once it came through, these actors knew that this is happening and that they could actually use it. Uh, so there's a sophisticated interplay in there. Uh, the impact of sanctions is most interesting because if you look at some of the actors in Syria today, uh, uh, Fawz, for example, he was not a very well-known figure prior to the war, right? And he amassed massive fortunes. Uh, the Katarji brothers who deal with, uh, with the oil trade, right? They're trading 
uh, oil they help so these are individuals who have Jewish shell companies uh, they can move resources around uh, they can bypass the sanctions they have relationships on different uh, parts of the enemy lines right so Katarji brothers for example were trading oil uh, that was produced in the Kurdish held regions and they were taking it back to the regions where the regime controlled oil refineries were in place and this trade was going on while the fighting uh, was taking place at the top. So this is hugely important uh, aspect of it. Post-occupation Iraq offers a glaring example of this. You have a nexus of top government officials, sectarian oligarchs and foreign companies. There's a very interesting uh, connection in there. Um, and of course there are positive external dimensions too. For example, in Turkish context, the entire growth experience, um, and of course we provided micro insights on the AKP affiliated firms, but the policy space they received or they benefited from uh, was co-constituted with Turkey's engagement with the European Union and the way it solved some of the commitment problem at home. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave at that, but... Okay. I'll, uh... Lebanon. Yeah, well, also, I mean, Gulf money, uh, I'd love to look at your book. Clearly, it is part of, of this because somehow Gulf investors are used to dealing with decision makers, with, with royalties and the like, so they're very good at playing the game of uh, kind of exchanges. So uh, we, we saw glimpses of that in various chapters. It's a very good team to develop. Oil rent, very interesting. Uh, we, we, we have only one chapter that looks at ownership of the private sector across countries and shows that the private sector is heavily owned by the public sector, uh, effectively, in the GCC, because this is where all the, the rent uh, money comes in. Um, I have more recent work with Melanie Kamet that I presented somewhere in another building here a year ago that looks at the difference between countries that have very high oil per capita, medium and low oil per capita. And actually, there's a, there's a very large difference in, in the political economy of the private sector. We kind of argue that in the high, very high oil economy, uh, you know, kind of Saudi Arabia and above, and Saudi is kind of now between the high and the middle range. Uh, really, the system works through clientelism, through distribution, and much less uh, through re naked repression. Uh, the private sector, you know, as you know, is 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 one where big players are there with imported labor and very little externalities to the rest of the economy. Most people worked in the past for, for the nationals, for, for the public sector. Um, and um, the, in, in the middle oil countries, on the other hand, uh, you have regimes that are mostly, uh, for a historical and incentives reason, uh, you know, use natural resources to finance a repressive system and repress not only people, but on, also heavily repress uh, the private sector. You have very small private sectors historically in Algeria or, 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 or Iraq in particular. Uh, so, so repressing markets and people, uh, very narrow. And then in the low oil countries is, is more of, of, of the Egypt story where, where you know, regimes are weak and are wary of the private sector but need the private sector for growth. And so uh, you have a somewhat of a larger, less narrow private sector. You know, 30 large cronies is, is a large group, actually. It gives you a private sector that 
can get you up to 20, 25 percent of, of, of the GDP in the formal economy. Um, so, so, so I think this this distinction is, is is important. Probably needs more work. Saudi Arabia is somewhat between the two groups because there isn't enough uh, funding. I mean, the big uh, the big shock recently, which would color. The, the the relationship between the private sector and and, and 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 the state is the oil shock you know half the price of what it was at the height 2014 you know after the arab spring where autocrats spent as much as they could to solidify their power and so uh, you know clearly you you can't hire Young Saudi graduates, which which are coming uh, in big numbers to the to, to to the market to the labor market in, in in government, and so what would be the strategy? I mean, the choices that say MBS faces are are not very easy. You know, on on the one hand, uh, you you need to create jobs or or perish basically, but on the other hand, that involves giving up some power to the to the private sector. And opening up the private sector beyond the, 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 the kind of the few, uh, and hurting the big guys that you know whose whose sectors and firms rely very much on imported labor, uh, and so restricting the entry of labor much more. So one way he could play it is is a la Turkey, basically creating. Uh, economic populism, creating SMEs and supporting them to replace uh, migrant workers, especially in the service sector, which uh, which uh, you know produces locally. Um, Lebanon somewhat faces the same shocks, right? And and many other countries now, uh, Algeria, Sudan, face that same shock of less oil money. Uh, extremely so in Sudan, right? Uh, state revenues have fallen from 25% to something like 5% now after they lost uh, the southern Sudanese oil. Extreme shock. Shock in Algeria. Uh, oil revenues cut from 60 to $30 billion. No adjustment yet. There are still some reserves to go. But all these regimes are facing a big question. You know, do I open up? Uh, which is which is dangerous, especially when the militaries are not in front. Or uh, do 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 I do I not open up and 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 face uh, the streets? So do I face the street or or the private sector? Um, in in the case of Lebanon, uh, I, I mean, as in the other cases, it's um, you know the regime has depended a lot not on oil but on remittances going through the banking sector and financing government deficits in addition to to the crony relations with the private sector that is also dominated by banks and politicians so that that uh, you know the, the the whole political settlement was very much based on this rent and with the sudden stop of capital the old model seems to be dead so where do we go from there <laughs> Uh, do we go to a new regime? You know, the street inherits ruins, and uh, and the street has a comparative advantage relative to the old politicians, possibly, or the regime reinvents itself through communal fights and the like. It's 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 very hard to tell. We are in this window where many things look possible, but I think one thing one can say, say by comparing Algeria and Sudan, is that you. I doubt that you will see many street movement revolutions, let's say, being able to get a state that's not in ruins. 
I mean, the Algerians still have $60 billion to spend, and the army will not bulge as long as they spend this money and therefore not adjust the budget and not truly face the anger of the street. Uh, in the case of Sudan, there was nothing to bargain for at the end. And so, you know, they had to have a deal between the street and the army to rebuild the, the pie, basically, the economic pie. And maybe Lebanon is going this way, um, you know, getting closer now to a Sudan situation. Interestingly, in Sudan, the army and the street had to share power at the end. So uh, the story remains to be told. What will happen in the next three years and who will emerge? Uh, the Gulf money is playing a big role here, supporting really the, the, the armed forces, it seems, uh, in that transition and hoping probably that they would emerge victorious at the end of this. Oh, great. And another round of questions. David. Hi. Uh, Davide from uh, Cambridge. Uh, so very nice to have you here. Um, thanks for the book, which is uh, super interesting. Uh, my question is, in a way, what would you, and it's connected to your last point, what do you, will you suggest to policymakers? Because uh, it makes me think, your book makes me think about Robert Bates, uh, famous book from uh, on African subsidies. And there the policy was, okay, so we need to, to liberalize in a way. And so the World Bank went on, etc. But now your, your work shows that actually when there is liberalization, also, there is a, there are rents and and and, and cronies out of there. So, if you have to meet uh, uh, your former colleagues at the World Bank, in uh, in your case, Isaac, or or, or people uh, from the policy war, Adil, what would you suggest them? Thank you. Well, it seems to me. Oh, oh I wait. I'll Sure, thanks very much. Um, two brief questions, if I might. The first is whether you had any kind of ancillary findings on the type of uh, foreign firms that might go in and partner and what kind of structures they would go into. So you looked at the EU trade changes, those kind of things. What are you seeing on the in outside going in? Uh, the second is kind of a more methodological question. How did you go about building the um, data sets? You went from finding the corrupt networks and then finding the companies that they had or you went to corporate registries and built it from the bottom up or a mix? I, I imagine in each country different, but I'd be interested to know more about that. Yeah, hello. Uh, thank you for this very interesting topic. But uh, I would like to ask you in regards uh, with all the data they have collected, of course, uh, since the Arab Spring and from now, uh, have we seen more liberalism in the economy? For example, for Egypt, uh, we have seen since Hosni Mubarak time and then uh, CC time, and then the, econom the economy wasn't that good. But now we have seen a, a bit, uh, let's say, better economy. We can see more... Uh, foreign uh, investment coming in and pouring in. And another thing when regards in GCC, uh, in the same topic <laughs> with uh, liberalism, now with the, if we hear a lot of these visions, 2030, 2020, and also, and so on, is that sort of a, sort of a tract saying for more liberal economy, getting the cronies and new, or is it, uh, what, what's your uh, view? Thank you. Uh, I don't have a question. I just want to say my take from the discussion is the following. Uh, creation of cronyism is to arrest democratic 
transition to avoid the popular uprising because shortage of jobs, etc., as we are seeing in places like Iraq mm. currently. Uh, that's my take so far. The other thing, the creation of chronism tends to be in the latter stage, stage of old rulers who are approaching the sell-by date for their exit, okay? Either being killed or demoted as uh, Panama in Noriega style, okay? And that's cronyism is a money laundering for the ruler, for the rulers, because ten, the tendency of rulers is actually not to steal themselves, but create instruments with favors to certain people to actually transfer the money overseas, particularly Switzerland or America. Is that the mechanism as we see in many cases? Um, Thank you. All right, should we stop there? Or there's one more question about care. We can get, get that many guys can have lots to, to talk about. Thank you, Courtney. Um, I'm a former student of Dr. Malik's and indeed a former student here as well. Um, my question is in regards to the liberalization of these economies. You often find that the people setting up the online businesses, the people setting up all the new you know, um, service-related industries, are the children or the grandchildren of this elite um, because they can open up a company quicker, because they can sell their products to their cronies quicker. I see this a lot, you know, from everything from cupcakes to travel agencies. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on the perpetuation of these entrenched elites. And then to Isaac Ishaq, um, a question vis-a-vis -vis Morocco. Um, I think it doesn't do this complicated elite relationship in Morocco justice to draw a parallel with a Syria or a Lebanon. Mm. The elites in Morocco have been around for centuries, much longer than the Taif Agreement. And uh, although the king gives them opportunities to do business, their acquiescence for the Sultan's central power has always been central to anybody holding power in Morocco. Uh, power in Morocco was never inherited, it was always won. And to have these elites in the big cities always with the Sultan was important in the Mahsin being able to perpetuate this very, very complicated um, relationship between the elites and the Mahsin. Mm. Oh, and sorry, my last point. Um, Jordan has always struck me as being incredibly clubby with people around, you know, the, the, the palace being able to, you know, get their way. I wonder if that's in the book just before I buy it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> okay, so should we start back with uh, Davide's question about what, what you'd say to the world? Okay. okay, I mean, uh, these are all very interesting questions. I must say that uh, we, you know, it's difficult to answer some of these questions because they're broad. We do have some pointers. Uh, I think on the policy options, it's clear that a political economy approach like this would suggest that we need to think about economic reform as part of larger reform, which includes politics too. And it takes us back to the economy, you know, political economy 101 lesson, that wherever growth has happened, wherever economies evolved, there's always been a co-evolution of economic and political exchange. And so the clearest implication would be, for example, for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, right? Recently in their report, um, 
I didn't believe it, uh, that they, they wrote, just like the World Bank wrote before uh, in the Mubarak era, that, you know, in Egypt, transparency is improved, governance is improved, uh, you know, bureaucratic effectiveness is improved. You can just go and check on their website. Um, and, you know, we think about economic policy, private sector development from a very narrow technocratic prism. And it's important to think about the way in which it's linked up with uh, with with the business-state relationship. So actually, no no economic reform, fundamental economic reform, or no fundamental political reform can be considered in isolation from each other. And it's a very complicated business, right? Uh, a lot of countries where growth happened, you had coalitions and you had elite incentives and elite interests. You had bargaining structures. You had you know, in some cases, international actors, um, you know, providing commitment devices. So the policy options here are really to think through uh, these two things, you know, different kinds of reforms uh, together. Um, and therefore, you know, you cannot think about job creation or private sector development in just technocratic terms. It's you know there's anti-politics reform will not take you uh, take you far. Um, I've got some ideas on 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 other questions too, but uh, uh, I think Ishaq is is better uh, equipped to answer those. But I'll very quickly uh, raise a few points. Um, when you talk about foreign firms going into into partnership, um, we are really thinking about. I mean, there's uh, there's evidence here and there. For example. In the context of uh, banks, a lot of the banks, foreign banks, when they have to open up their branches in Morocco or Tunisia or Egypt, they have to partner with one of the regime insiders because the, the bank licenses are. Similarly, real estate and construction. Um, and that's where the GCC linkages are also very important. If you see the growth of Islamic finance industry in the 2000s, especially post 9-11, there's a lot of cooperation um, between Gulf families in, in these sectors. Tourism is a very interesting sector. I mean, there's huge uh, uh, interplay between domestic and, 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 and foreign actors uh, because these are spaces that are very much rationed, very much restricted, carefully opened uh, to allow for partnerships. In terms of data, um, I think our approach is really uh, to combine qualitative information with quantitative. And so for qualitative information, a lot of the work builds on this insight that Ishaq had presented in his original work on Egypt, which is to look for these family members or uh, other influential members who you know who are very powerful. Everybody knows they have important business interests. And you compile a list of these names. Uh, in Egypt's case, for example, Stephen Rawls book provides a pretty complete description of uh, all the different uh, actors who became influential, uh, those who were serving on boards and different parliamentary committees. Uh, even now, if you go to the Egyptian parliament today, you would see uh, a, you know, those who control the technology committee in the parliament, uh, the real estate committee in the parliament, construction committee, they're usually magnates, right? And then these individuals um, can be searched on larger universal databases of firms. So, for example, in LSE, I use actually the LSE database because Oxford doesn't have it. It was the Orbis database uh, where Ishaq's original work, we took inspiration from his uh, original work on Egypt and looked, ran through these names uh, through the Orbis 
files, right? And so you could see where these individuals appear as minority or majority shareholders and then determine what products those sectors are producing, uh, those firms are producing, and which sectors those firms lie. So we use the same procedure in the case of Morocco as well. So it's possible that there's few firms that are at the bottom of the scale of political connection might, might you know, uh, not be captured, but it's basically we are able to capture the large number of firms that are politically connected. Um, I will leave the post-Arab Spring question to, to Ishaq, who, who knows a lot more about uh, this subject. Uh, also, Vision 2030 has written a lot um, on this subject. Um, on the question about uh, Morocco, I completely agree. Our paper on Morocco um, precisely highlights the importance of this coalition. And yes, the king is powerful, but he always needs the support of the parliament. And that's why he's constantly throwing his weight behind different types of coalitions. So political governments are changing. Um, and what kind of exchange takes place there, especially through business interests, is very crucial for regime durability. And that's why this sort of business state relationship is, is exceedingly important. Um, I'll leave at that and let Ishaq right. add. <clears throat> I'm taking those questions together. Uh, really, uh, or, or starting from David, is, uh, I mean, when you start having a political economy framework, it's much harder to, to give uh, that simplistically policy recommendations because really the whole kind of that way of looking at the world is, is, uh, is about looking about how uh, economic and political power align. And, and when you get contradictions, what, what happen? And so you can recommend something that uh, can get you a larger pie, but uh, from a distributive perspective, doesn't align with power. And uh, it's like shouting on the rooftops. Nobody would listen to you, which, which, which is exactly what I did in the 90s when I worked for the World Bank, going around and you know, telling governments how stupid they were not to liberalize or this and that. And it took a while for my mind and, and, and uh, what I read to the World Bank as well to evolve and you know, start talking about corruption and later discovering that actually there is politics after all. Um, so in terms of, kind of post-Arab Spring, we have to ask ourselves what kind of alignments could we possibly have between economics and politics that could lead to progress? And so we have these models, but one, one uh, kind of easy conclusion out of Tunisia is that democratization is not the, solu the, the magic solution. Uh, I mean, you could explain a lot about the past by, 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 by elites trying to retain power and not move towards democracy, and one of our characterization uh, of, of cronism in the Middle East is that it's very much driven by exclusion because you had... Uh, I, I agree that Morocco is more complicated and, and Saudi Arabia, the, the, the conservative monarchies are somewhat different because, as I said earlier, they're kind of trying to move the contract with their constituencies. But in other cases, you had, especially in the populist republic, you know, fragile regimes trying to survive. And, and so exclusion was really the name of the game. And, and from, from a gross perspective, Exclusion is, is tough because you want to exclude firms in the growth sectors. This is where they could become powerful. As opposed to a more benign form of cronism that we see in many parts of the world. So this is an exclusion a la Russia, if you like. 
in Brazil or in other places. Uh, you you want to collect trends to finance campaigns and a bit of clientelism, and you tend to go to the rent-filled sectors, and these are the low-growth sectors, so it doesn't hurt the macro as much as when the motive is political exclusion. So so it was bad. Now, moving to, to democracy, as Tunisia is showing us, is not the nirvana, because you cannot build the rule of law and institutions that easily. A competitive system uh, corrupts as well. Uh, and, and, and so it's a different route. You need to improve on that democracy. And Tunisia is going to show us the way. It's a different ball game, but it's not an easier ball game. Uh, to get uh, you know vibrant private sector in a in a messy democracy. Um, so, what are possible models? I mean, there is uh, the model of CC, which is kind of a restoration of democracy, uh, narrowing capitalism even more to army contracts. It doesn't seem to be working, frankly. I mean, it's, it it works at stabilizing the economy. You know, you can you can devalue by fifty percent and hold the street, but the Private sector investment is 6% of GDP in Egypt now. It's lower than under Nasser. So you can't easily take the, the horse to the water, is that the expression? So, I mean, it doesn't seem to be, to be working that easily, uh, that much. Uh, another, um, maybe more, uh, the, the, the AKP model, the kind of economic populist model uh, that, that MBS is trying now, may work better. Uh, you know, if he makes space for the private sector, he has to actually be able to dethrone all the big families that control services with their foreign labor. Uh, Algeria also may try to go this way. Uh, and Algerian state is extremely invested in microcredit and credit to small firms and the like. Uh, but... Uh, these businesses tend to be very unproductive. You have... Uh, you know, Dutch disease issues and the like. So whether that model could become more efficient uh, is, is a big question. Uh, and then you have the Moroccan route, uh, you know, better management, manage your elite better. And that is probably the way Jordan is, is trying to go. Um, and it's not a matter of, you know, bargaining and then convincing your businesses that you can survive and that they shouldn't diversify too much abroad, but that they should invest for the long term in the country. It's a tough game that Moroccans have been more successful at. There is a chapter that on Jordan <clears throat> that somehow compares Jordan to Morocco, and it's, it's kind of a funny story. It's an interesting story uh, where uh, Steve Monroe argues that uh, the specificity of Jordan compared to Morocco is that uh, economic, the economic elites are Palestinians and therefore not, not have blood ties with the regime. And so the kind of deals where the regime in Morocco managed to kind of remove uh, protection and give access to, to other rents that could compensate, that kind of a deal that requires trust that you will deliver in the future, uh, doesn't exist in Jordan. And as a result, Jordan wasn't able to liberalize as much as in Morocco uh, because there would be fierce opposition from the Palestinian private sector that doesn't trust the regime. So it's just interesting analysis there. Okay, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think I've answered. Okay, um, we only have a few minutes left. If anyone has any one last or any quick question. Um, yeah. Um, thank you. 
Thank you for the panel. Um, one quick question. Um, how do you think the sanctions have shaped cronism in Iran? And assuming that um, sanctions will be removed in future or a nuclear deal is reached, do you think uh, cronism will be eradicated? Uh, easy one then. Um, I guess we just have time, I think, really for. Right. I mean, I'm not an Iran expert, but I'll give you just general insight. I mean, firstly, cronyism is very different in Iran, right? It's it's around sort of semi-public organizations gaining more influence. Uh, we don't have particular evidence on, you know, firm-level evidence on what is this doing to productivity, to job creation, others. But there are a couple of things that stand out for Iran. I mean, one is that it has a very educated labor force. Uh, it was forced to diversify a bit more because of sanctions. Uh, and so there is evidence, for example, Jamal Ibrahim Heather's work on, um, you know, the, the, the presence of export-oriented firms, how they grew over time, how they were able to navigate through sanctions. There's, there's a bit more at play in that context. Um, I think there's now beginning to be a um, lot more work on sanctions. Uh, people like uh, Tok Ayat at Cambridge uh, is doing that. A lot of other people doing work on political economy of sanctions. And there's broad agreement that sanctions do not necessarily hurt the regimes as such, right? They're kind of collective punishment of people, right? And um, in a way, if you look at Iraq, for example, the Iraqi regime survived. In fact, what happened in that period was that the informal sector grew quite a bit. So the regime was able to make alliances with different set of actors, some old bureaucrats, some regional figures, and then inserted themselves more heavily into uh, cross-border smuggling and trade, right? So... In a sense, sanctions kind of displace that real economy. Uh, so if the idea for sanctions is to, is to create a positive pathway for change, uh, it doesn't really, it doesn't really uh, take place. In terms of Iran, I think it seems to me, and I might be wrong, but it seems to me that those who consider Iran as a threat, is a th you know, the, the threat was less about nuclear it seems to me sometimes. I think the real threat was that if the nuclear deal goes through and the Iranian economy is waiting to be integrated to the regional and global economy, it would have created consequences far more uh, uh, radical than just a simple nuclear security-like situation. Because I think uh, Iran had that capacity in terms of, you know, how far it is from the technology frontier, from the growth frontier, whether it comes to its airline industries, you know, processing, its, um, you know, um, consumer-oriented sectors, uh, its capacity to be integrated in spare parts industry, global value chains. It's just huge potential. And the only constraint there is really are the sanctions. You know, once those sanctions are lifted, it's an economy waiting to be uh, integrated. And I think, in a sense, it's precisely that private sector that could possibly be owned by the middle classes uh, is what will suffer most from the sanctions. Right? It's precisely that element of the economy that could pose greater competition to these semi-public organizations. That's the sector that's squeezed by sanctions. So, ironically, it has the, precisely the opposite impact. I would assume there's a prior, but we don't have a data to, on this extent.
Great, thank you so much. Are you going to add? There's a minute left. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm conscious of your, your yeah. train. Um, I think, thank you so much. I think it gives us a really good sense of what an important contribution the book is and how much ground it covers. It's, it's really impressive and really great contribution, as I said. Um, and I guess I'll uh, let you guys know that the next Middle East Center event will be this Thursday, where we're kind of continuing this political economy theme that we have uh, going with uh, Veli Yardaji from SOAS, who will be discussing the political economy of the Kurdish question in Turkey. So hopefully I'll see some of you there. And uh, you have flyers for information about the book. Um, but thank you so much. Thank you.